Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. And I'm David Lipton, also a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Professor Eric Nessler, Professor and Chair of Neuroscience at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and Director of the Friedman Brain Institute at Mount Sinai. In this episode, we'll talk about the molecular basis of addiction, improving animal models of depression, and being a true Yaley. All this and more coming up. We're here with Professor Eric Nessler, Professor and Chair of Neuroscience at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and Director of the Friedman Brain Institute at Mount Sinai. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Nessler. My pleasure. All right, so usually um, we like to start with a little bit of your early background, mm -hmm. so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. So where did you grow up, and uh, were you interested in science as a kid? I grew up in New York City and, and then on Long Island, and my dad was a high school biology teacher, and I fell in love with science from an early age. We uh, ran science experiments in the basement of our house, and uh, when I, so I always thought I'd want to stay in science or medicine, and when I got to college and first had the opportunity to do research based at a university, I completely fell in love with it, and you know, basically the rest is history. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. we know you did your your undergrad and eventually your medical school and your graduate training <laughs> all at Yale. Yes. Uh, so, uh, what was so special about you? <laughs> <laughs> so I spent 27 years in New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> and I went there for Yale College and. Uh, what made me stay on y at Yale longer was my uh, work with Paul Greengard. So when I was an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to work in his lab first as a summer student, and then I did a senior thesis in his lab. And I just loved Paul, loved the lab, loved the science. And when I had the opportunity to apply for MD-PhD programs, I made the decision to stay at Yale largely so that I could do a PhD with Paul. Uh, and then thereafter, it was always there were always good reasons for me to stay, mm -hmm. uh, despite the advice uh, that you probably still hear today that it's always good to move around and not stay where you train. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's probably good reason not to stay where you train, but for me it worked out pretty well, and uh, I had a, a great early career at Yale. Yeah, you actually so as you mentioned, you did your PhD work with um, mm -hmm. Paul Greengard, um, who was then at Yale and had an extremely productive graduate mm -hmm. career. And you worked on um, several projects involving phosphorylation mm -hmm. of proteins and neurons in the brain due to like the action of neurotransmitters and neurohormones. Mm -hmm. And one of the proteins was called protein one. Protein one. <laughs> so how did it feel to be working on like the protein so important it was labeled protein <laughs> one? Well, and what became of it? Right. Well, it's hysterical. <laughs> and anytime I uh, told friends of mine at the time. Uh, not in science that I was working on protein one. It was always a conversation starter <laughs> because it's like, what is protein one? Yeah. <laughs> protein one was named protein one because it was the first molecular weight band on a gel of proteins that were being phosphorylated by acyclic AMP activated protein kinase. Uh, so if you turn back the clock, gosh, how many years now? 35 years or so. Uh, it was not intuitively obvious to most of the neuroscience field that biochemical processes such as protein phosphorylation had any relevance at all to neural phenomena. Mm -hmm. And I always love it today when I uh, teach our graduate students. I still give them a lecture on protein kinases and protein phosphatases. And in your generation, it's assumed how pretty much every type of neural protein is regulated by protein phosphorylation and that process can regulate, therefore, every uh, event uh, yeah. undergoing in a nerve cell. Uh, back in those days, I remember that uh, most of the field was skeptical. So that yeah. when I uh, was applying for graduate programs around the country, very famous neuroscientists who will go unnamed today <laughs> uh, told me that they were frankly skeptical that protein phosphorylation had anything to do with anything other than the cell's metabolism yeah. and that I was just making a big mistake by staying at Yale to work with Paul Greengard. Wow. And it's so funny now to see 30 years later how, you know, uh, the scientific truth becomes evident and yeah. it becomes part of just the natural lexicon that you'll even learn in high school biology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a wonderful feeling being in the lab back in those days because we 
organized ourselves around the skepticism, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, to prove the world wrong. Uh -huh. And we had the feeling at the time that the Green Guard Lab was studying something very big. Really, I think, to provide experimental proof that protein phosphorylation events, so that the phosphorylation of any of a variety of proteins in a nerve cell regulate that nerve cell's function. So okay. the protein one, that protein that I studied, yeah. uh, turned out to be synapsin one. Right. Uh, and it led to a, a new field of biology of studying synaptic vesicle proteins that was really in its infancy back in 1980 or so. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, it led to Tom Sudhoff's Nobel Prize in a sense right. because it was the demonstration that a synaptic vesicle, that, that this unknown protein, protein one on a band on a gel, phosphorylated by PKA, uh, turned out to be a synaptic vesicle protein, led to the notion that neurotransmitter release might be subject to dynamic regulation in ways that hadn't been thought of previously, and then to Tom Sudhoff coming in and cloning the whole family of synaptic vesicle proteins that we now, mm -hmm. again, know is uh, second nature to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So really providing a link between neural activity and mechanisms yes. of synaptic plasticity. Yes. Um, very cool. So, and what was it like? In, what was it like working with Paul Greengard? I actually saw that there's a YouTube interview of you interviewing him. Yes, <laughs> like exactly. All these years later, so exactly. I, you know, obviously, it was a great relationship. I had a, a, a really great opportunity to interview Paul twice. Once I think about 20 years ago, and once just recently, a few years ago. So it's a lot. It was a lot of fun. Paul is a great mentor. He um, always cared a lot about the people in his lab, not only about their scientific work, but also about how they were doing personally. Yeah. And in many ways, I still go back to things I learned from Paul in the way I manage my own lab. Uh, that sense of generosity and um, looking after the well-being of one's students and postdocs is something that's very much with me, and, and I think I learned that from Paul. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, so then you went on to start uh, your own lab uh, yes. at Yale, um, and you made a lot of contributions to under molecular understanding of reward and addiction. Mm -hmm. So what first got you interested in these questions? So in between, a, I did a residency in psychiatry, <coughs> and I mentioned that because it um, prompted uh, it prompted the work that we started doing. Yeah. And I'll be, give you a very honest answer now, because uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in research that is not necessarily hypothesis-driven yeah. and instead really just open-ended, exploratory. Well, the polite word term now is discovery science. Yeah. We used to call it fishing expeditions. Mm -hmm. yeah. But basically, uh, I worked in a psychiatry research group as a resident, sort of as a postdoc, and I applied principles I learned of protein phosphorylation uh, to standard cyst experimental systems that were being used by people in my research group, which involved giving rats different types of psychotropic drugs, drugs of abuse, antidepressants, and psychotic drugs, and then exploring changes that occur inside the brains of those animals. Yeah. And employing what at the time were state-of-the-art biochemical approaches to those questions was not being done by other people. So it enabled me to offer a unique niche in my approach to these questions. Mm -hmm. And we started focusing on drug of abuse for two main reasons. One, because the changes that morphine or cocaine produced in rat brain were far more profound, larger in magnitude, larger in number, than the other forms of psychotropic drugs. And secondly, uh, the animal models of addiction are more straightforward than for other psychiatric syndromes. So we knew even yeah. back then, this is now 28 or so years ago, that the um, that a mouse or rat, if given the option, will self-administer and addict themselves to a drug of abuse. Yeah. Uh, and that's a pretty good animal model of addiction. Yeah. Uh, the animals will uh, addict, take drug at the expense of eating, sleeping, having sex, running on a running wheel, and things like that. I've seen these videos of rats just like incessantly just pressing constantly, levers, just constantly to get pressing the levers. Reward of drug in the and so that's a decent model. And by comparison, uh, animal models of depression, let alone something like schizophrenia, yeah. are much uh, harder to uh, formulate. And so for that reason, we focused on drugs of abuse and we were able to identify biochemical changes that occurred in, in nerve cells that were targets of these drugs. And then because of the animal models, we were able to demonstrate 
or directly implicate these proteins or changes in the proteins in the behavior that defines an addicted state in the animal model. And then go into the individual nerve cells and demonstrate how these biochemical changes alter the activity, functional activity, of these nerve cells in association with that behavioral abnormality. So it enabled us to do something that was pretty unique in psychiatry at the time, uh, much more commonplace now, I think, where one can identify a molecular adaptation to some stimulus and then causally close the loop and demonstrate how that molecular change alters the function of a nerve cell and how those alterations lead to a an abnormality in complex behavior. Yeah. Right. So you really had a nice, robust behavior that you could really truly link to molecular changes. Um, one thing I want to ask about is some of those manipulations. So one thing you really did in some of your early papers was to con- contrast acute administration of cocaine with chronic. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, the reason for trying such chronic uh, mm-hmm. manipulations that relate to patients at all, or was it something about the robustness of the phenotype? It was based on clinical phenomena mm-hmm. that we know that uh, an, a single dose of a drug of abuse mm-hmm. is not the same as addiction. Mm-hmm. So almost everybody on a college campus will smoke a cigarette at right. some point in their lives. Most everybody will drink alcohol with some regularity mm-hmm. during most of life, but most people avoid addiction. Mm -hmm. And addiction is a selective response in vulnerable individuals to repeated chronic administration of a drug. And I think that that was one of the um, competitive advantages that my lab had at the time because we were willing to go through the extra work of uh, dosing animals chronically with drugs of abuse and then focusing not on whole brain or whole spinal cord, and believe it or not, there were many labs at the time that were just studying whole brain. Hmm. Uh, We focused on very uh, defined um, regions of brain that were known to be important for actions of drugs of abuse that in a rat or mouse brain might be a millimeter in diameter, for example, so there are just a relatively small number of nerve cells, so we had to work hard to adapt the experimental tools that we were using to analyze the small amounts of tissue. Yeah. And maybe while we're on that subject, what, are, what were some of the brain regions that were, I mean, at that time, did people know what brain regions were involved in? Yes, yeah, so we started out with a brain region called the locus ceruleus. Mm-hmm. So that is the major neuroadrenergic nucleus in brain. Um, it had been widely studied in uh, neuroscience, neuropharmacology, uh, psychiatric neuroscience, because of its, uh, the fact that it is uh, the source of noradrenaline, norepinephrine, for most of the forebrain and thereby implicated in uh, antidepressant actions Uh mostly. But um, it had been shown by other labs that the locus ceruleus was important in mediating physical opiate withdrawal. So uh, when an animal or human takes opiates chronically Uh and then you precipitate withdrawal, experimentally you can do that by giving an opioid receptor antagonist, uh, the animal exhibits a profound opiate withdrawal syndrome, cold turkey, in a human. So it's very obvious. That's really a robust behavior that one could study. Mm -hmm. And so the initial initial work we did focused on changes in locus ceruleus. Again, that's less than a millimeter in diameter in a rat um, in response to chronic opiate administration before withdrawal and then during the induction of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered initially was a profound upregulation of the cyclic AMP pathway in this brain area, which over time we gradually and directly implicated in the behavior of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Having done that, we moved to more complicated brain areas mm-hmm. that were being shown at the time to be important in brain reward, mm-hmm. which is close, more closely related to drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the compulsive seeking and taking of drug. So that means areas like uh, the ventral tegmental area, a small region very rich in dopamine neurons, Mm -hmm. and the projection regions for those dopamine cells, most importantly a part of the ventral striatum called the nucleus accumbens. Mm -hmm. And so most of my work since that time has been focused on VTA and nucleus accumbens. And talking about some of the molecular changes Mm -hmm. that you actually found in some of these brain areas, 
One thing you started looking at were the immediate early genes. So these are transcription yes. factors that are very rapidly induced upon activity. Uh, many of our audience will have heard of CFAS and CGN. Yeah, sure. But uh, maybe can you tell us what were some of the specific changes you found with the chronic drug administration? Yeah, sure. So again, bring the clock back about 25 years ago. And if you go to the Society for Neuroscience Abstracts, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you'll see at that time as you will fads along the way, a fad <laughs> in studying immediate early genes. Mm -hmm. So everyone was giving their stimulus of choice and looking at their brain region of choice and seeing whether CFOS was induced. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, as part of an open-ended exploration, we just asked whether cocaine would induce CFOS in nucleus accumbens. Sure enough, very dramatic induction of CFOS in response to a single dose mm -hmm. of cocaine. Uh, back th in that time period, most of the uh, field in addiction focused on what's called drug sensitization, uh, so behavioral sensitization, so that certain behavioral responses to cocaine or other drugs of abuse show reverse tolerance. They become greater with constant drug administrations over time. And so we tested whether uh, repeated cocaine doses would lead to an even greater induction of CFOS. Mm -hmm. uh, which would be a form of molecular sensitization. Mm -hmm. We did the experiment. We turned, we turned out we saw the opposite. There was a desensitization in FOSS response. Mm -hmm. That was curious yeah. and surprising. The only way in those days, there were no antibodies to these proteins, that we could measure CFOS protein activity was to use a, an assay called uh, a gel shift assay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is where you take a radioactively labeled uh, oligonucleotide right. corresponding to the response element to which FOS-like proteins bind, called an AP1 site. Mm -hmm. That's radio-labeled. You incubate it with a tissue extract, mm -hmm. and then you run it on a gel. Mm -hmm. Most of the free probe, the oligonucleotide, runs at the bottom of the gel, uh -huh. but when any part of that probe that's bound to protein will run higher on the gel where the protein binds. Mm -hmm. So that, therefore, the gel shift assay. Yeah. And not surprisingly, acute cocaine caused a large increase in AP1-like binding activity mm -hmm. in nucleus accumbens. And chronic cocaine produced the same or even a greater uh, degree of increase in AP1 binding activity. AP1 binding is the CFOS and June well, complex. Exactly. Some, yeah. some c complex of the proteins like FOS and June dimers. Mm -hmm. And that was, again, surprising because it suggested that there was something else other than CFOS, which was being desensitized, mm -hmm. that comprised this persistent activity. Mm -hmm. And that led to several years' work where we ultimately showed that this so-called chronic FOS-like protein were, were stabilized isoforms of a protein called Delta-FOS-B, mm -hmm. which shows very unique temporal properties because it's highly stable. And in response to repeated drug administration, its levels gradually build up, form that chronic AP1 complex that we had detected, and at the same time serve to desensitize the ability of cocaine to induce CFOS. Mm -hmm. uh, we called it at the time a molecular switch mm -hmm. because it was a process by which a novel transcription factor was being induced uniquely in the chronic state, mm -hmm. switching off then the acute FOS-like proteins and leading to then uh, unique changes in transcriptional regulation in the chronic treated state, which struck us as a particularly interesting uh, principle at the time. Mm -hmm. So you have an increase in um, AP1 complex because of the increase in Delta FOS. Correct. Is CFOS part of that same complex? With no, Delta so that, no, so that chronic complex is comprised of Delta FOS B and a June protein, uh, and the other FOS family proteins are no longer induced okay. in that chronic state. Uh, Delta FOS B becomes the unique FOS family protein under those conditions. Okay. So it's like you have a set of chronic proteins and a set of acute proteins. Yes. And once you start building up those chronic proteins, your response to acute cocaine is no longer strong. It's almost like, I'm addicted now. All kinds of changes are happening to me, <laughs> including yeah. the fact that I don't get the kick from just a little bit. Well, so, the question, so that's the question. That right. became an empirical question. I you know, see. So here's this chronic, unique chronic protein. What the heck is that doing in, in the nerve cell and to the animal? Yeah. And fast forward now uh, about a decade or so of research, we invested a lot of effort in developing the experimental tools that enabled us to address these questions. Yeah. So again, bring back the clock 20 years ago. How do you test whether a 
the, in, the induction of this novel protein in one nerve cell type, because it's only in one cell type of nucleus accumbens, right. what, what does that protein do to these cells and how does it alter behavior? Mm-hmm. So we looked at a FOSB knockout mouse that was made around this time, uh-huh. but the knockout mouse had many developmental abnormalities and we made the decision that it was not a good model of what is happening in the adult brain. Mm-hmm. So instead, yeah. we did two things. We first introduced viral-mediated gene transfer for the field. I think my lab was one of the first that used it. Mm-hmm. So we collaborated with Rachel Nevy, who is uh, at, at MIT now, to make herpes simplex virus vectors that uh, can uh, induce very rapid expression of any mm-hmm. encoded protein. In, and incorporated delta FOS B or dominant negative antagonists mm-hmm. of delta FOS B into these vectors and injected them into nucleus accumbens and asked how that changed the animal. So now you had a very specific manipulation that could either exogenously upregulate exactly. that chronic without the behavior, just exactly. upregulate that protein. Or block or its block activity. Um, and that HSVs at least allowed us to limit delta FOS B exposure to the nucleus accumbens, yeah. all but all nerve cells in the nucleus accumbens, not the one cell type in which we were interested in. But it had the temporal specificity that we wanted because mm-hmm. these were manipulations in animals that develop normally. Mm-hmm. So the other method we employed was something uh, involving the tetracycline gene regulation system, mm-hmm. which became popular maybe 15 or so years ago. I don't know if you guys yeah. have heard about no, it, yeah. but it's a way to use the tetoperant system to control gene expression in mammals. Yeah. So it's a two-gene system. The first uh, gene is a promoter of choice driving the TTA protein, tetracycline right. transactivator, the second gene is the TEDOP promoter, which is normally uh, in, in, activated by TTA, yeah. and then uh, driving the protein of interest. And you can suppress this two-gene system by treating the animals with doxycycline, a tetracycline yeah. uh, derivative. And um, so we had animals where we had bitransgenic mice. We made multiple lines of both of those transgenes, expressing both of those, either of those transgenes, and then made many crosses. So we probably, in the end, this was done by a graduate student, by the way, Max <laughs> Kells, uh, who uh, probably ended up generating on the order of 10 or 20 different lines of bitransgenic mice. Mm-hmm. And we used a promoter that was a neuron-specific enolase promoter just to target the expression to nerve cells. Because, again, in those days, we didn't really have the promoters that specified cell type so selectively to one uh, neuron cell type. But because we tried many of these crosses and you know about uh, insertion effects of transgenes, Mm -hmm. uh, altering the spatial pattern of expression, we were able to find a bitransgenic cross that targeted the one cell type where delta FOSB was induced, the Mm -hmm. D1 dopamine receptor expressing subtype of medium spiny neuron. Mm And it was spatially, um, spatially specific to striatum only. Wow! Just by luck is an example mm-hmm. of just brute force <laughs> and and yeah. luck. And so with both of these systems, we were able to again the animals in the tetracycline system are normal during development, uh-huh. although they're being treated with doxycycline throughout mm-hmm. life. But so are the control animals. Take doxycycline away over a period of about two weeks the transgenes are expressed, but now only in that one cell type. So using the viral approach and using the transgenic approach, we were able to demonstrate really compelling data that when delta FOS B is expressed in a D1 type medium spiny neuron of adult animals, the animals become dramatically more sensitive to a range of rewards. So all drugs of abuse, as well as natural rewards, food, sex, exercise, high-fat food, and so on. Mm -hmm. So that Delta FOS B is sensitizing animals to rewards in their environment. Therefore, the the hypothesis is is still today that it's one of the factors, one of many factors, but one of the factors that is helping to drive an addicted state. And how were you measuring the sensitivity toward all these um, rewards? Through the various behavioral assays that are available. So one is drugs of abuse will induce locomotor activation. Uh Animals will move around more. So delta FOS B 
uh, made animals move around more to lower doses of drugs. Uh-huh. There's another assay called condition place preference or right. place conditioning where an animal will learn to prefer an environment where it's been given cocaine. Mm-hmm. Delta Fos B, again, uh, increases an animal's place conditioning to lower doses of cocaine. And then ultimately, the best animal model is self-administration, as I mentioned earlier. And animals expressing delta Fos B in this D1-type nerve cell will learn to self, will become addicted. They will learn to self-administer faster at lower doses of cocaine. But most importantly, once they are self-administering stably, there's a test called progressive ratio where you ask how hard an animal is willing to work to get the next dose of cocaine. Mm -hmm. So in a progressive ratio assay, you have an animal that is basically addicted. You put it back in the cage, and now you test how hard it's willing to work for that next dose. So it presses the lever once, it gets a dose of cocaine. Presses the lever to get the next dose. It has to press the lever, say, twice, mm-hmm. then four times, then eight times, then sixteen times. Eventually, the animal will give up. Just working too hard mm-hmm. to press a lever that many times within a short time span to get a dose of cocaine. And animals will reach a point where they will stop self-administering, called the break point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what Delta Fos B did was to dramatically increase that break point. So it mm-hmm. kept the animals working for cocaine much more, much harder than a control animal. And so um, delta Fos B is this transcription factor. Yes. And ultimately to affect the function of yes. neural circuits, um, presumably uh, it's going to affect uh, properties of um, synapses or, or somehow affect Absolutely. the firing rate of, yeah. of neurons in the circuit. So um, w- what um, steps uh, might Delta FOSB be inducing mm-hmm. in order to change these circuit properties? So this is a question that we have been approaching in the lab, again, in two main ways. One is by looking at candidate genes, and I think a better approach is to use more open-ended assays. Uh, so we overexpress Delta FOSB, knock it down, and measure all the RNAs that are affected in a cocaine or other drug paradigm mm-hmm. uh, using initially DNA microarrays 10 years ago, now RNA-seq, the more modern approach. Uh, more directly, we can measure the binding of endogenous Delta Fos B to genes under control or drug-treated conditions. Uh, a few years ago, using an assay called CHIP-CHIP, chromin and immunoprecipitation, followed by analysis on promoter chips. Mm-hmm. Now we're going back to that question using ChIP-seq, which is a far more complete analysis since it captures delta Fos B binding across the entire genome. And that later, that latter assay is still ongoing. So you uh, but take an over- antibody against delta Fos yes. B, pull down these chopped up DNA segments, and then you're left with the DNA strands that right. are attached to them. That's right. And then you can analyze those, those DNA strands initially as we did on a chip, uh-huh. or better is to just sequence them, which yeah. is technology now available right. that, mm-hmm. that we're using. Um, but along the way, we were able to find m- many interesting target genes for Delta Fos B, one being subunits of AMPA glutamate receptors, uh, as well as uh, proteins that control the um, actin cytoskeleton. And that has led to a story in which we've collaborated with Rob Malenka here at Stanford, uh, providing a growing amount of evidence that one of the things that Delta Fos B is doing is orchestrating a change in gene expression in these D1-type medium-spiny neurons that leads to the formation of silent synapses. And uh, we've been able to directly demonstrate that uh, a reduction in glutamatergic innervation of these cells does lead to behavioral changes in an animal's response to a drug of abuse as, as we would predict. Mm-hmm. These silent synapses, just to summarize, these are yeah. these are basically synapses that have allowed for our previous work in long-term plasticity has suggested that these are these are empty synapses that are, that are allowing for potentiation at the exactly. Later on. Um, so it seems like that these changes are really changing the brain, changing the circuit. Yeah. Um, and how might um, these uh, silent synapses, the, the potentiation then drive um, this sensitization in terms of interacting with the uh, projections coming in from right. DTA or other brain regions? So, he- so here are some key questions that we need to answer. First, we need to understand which particular family of glutamatergic synapses are being affected. The nucleus accumbens D1 nerve cells receive glutamatergic innervations from many 
cortical, and other forebrain regions, amygdala, hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, thalamus, among others. Presumably not all of those inputs are being affected by delta Phos B, or the question is, are all being affected, or is it more circuit-specific? That's a question we're now addressing. Ultimately, in order to answer your question of how you go from an altered strength of synaptic innervation of a single type of nerve cell to a complex behavior is something that I think the field of neuroscience really has not yet figured out how to do. We can demonstrate causal linkage. So with optogenetic approaches and other, and other uh, methods, we can demonstrate that a change in synaptic strength leads to sensitized responses. That's what we've done. But how it leads to sensitized responses, I think, is a separate and more difficult question. I just have to jump back, because what was this assay you were talking about, the progressive stop? Oh, pr progressive ratio. Right. And I was just as listening to that, I started thinking about patients again. It's yes. It's a descriptive uh, test. I don't know if this is something that's actually used in patients. But more to the point is we're talking a lot about susceptibility here. Yeah. Uh, are these changes you actually think might be, I mean, this is speculative, might be changing uh, happening in patients? And conversely, I think if you're thinking about patients, uh, what are, are there genes that maybe reduce susceptibility um, as FOSB maybe one Yes. Of them? So you asked a couple of questions there. Yeah. Let me try to address them if I can remember them yeah. all. So the first is uh, we do think that these changes occur in human nucleus accumbens. We can show in post-mortem brain samples. So these are pieces of brain mm -hmm. taken from an individual who dies mm -hmm. when they're addicted to uh, cocaine. Mm -hmm. Most of these people died of cocaine overdoses, in fact. And we can demonstrate that these individuals have higher levels of delta Phos B in their nucleus accumbens. So we think this is a phenomenon that does occur in humans. The question of whether there's the synaptic changes in human brain uh, in the addicted state is inaccessible today. We don't have the tools to measure that. Mm -hmm. We can show by brain imaging that the response of nucleus accumbens activity is altered in a cocaine addict, but how that altered activity relates to more fundamental changes like alterations in cell excitability and synaptic plasticity cannot be addressed. Sure. Um, so the qu and then the question is what about the genetic underpinnings of vulnerability or mm -hmm. sensitivity to addiction? We know that addiction in humans is about 50% heritable, mm -hmm. which is really an astounding number, right? Yeah. Because we know that addiction is very much uh, controlled by psychological and social factors as well. So it's surprising that something like that is still so heritable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But despite its high so that, and that high rate of heritability is greater than high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So, that's you know, it's really yeah, heritable, really right? Yeah, okay. And yet despite that high rate of heritability, it's not been possible to identify the individual genes that comprise that risk. Mm -hmm. Likely because, as we learn about complex genetics, that the, uh, a human's vulnerability for a whole range of, of uh, phenotypes, we now know, is controlled by hundreds of genes. Mm -hmm. And it may be that, in fact, it's likely that risk for an addiction is determined by hundreds of genes that come together differently in different individuals. Mm -hmm. So there may really not be a gene of strong effect, mm -hmm. single gene of strong effect that contribute to addiction risk. So with the one exception of nicotine addiction, mm -hmm. where the nicotinic receptor variants in the genes encoding certain nicotinic receptors seems to relate to a nicotine addiction vulnerability. And similarly, a variation in the mu opioid receptor seems to relate to different responses to opiate drugs of abuse, mm -hmm. each of which comprise and ex contribute to less than 1% mm -hmm. of the total risk for nicotine or opiate addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No other gene has reached genome-wide significance. Mm -hmm. So that remains an open question for the field. So we don't know if delta Phos B gene variations are involved or not. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the approaches we're taking is to develop small molecules directed against delta Phos B, mm -hmm. which could be used, say, as PET ligands. Mm -hmm. uh, and if this worked, it would open up the possibility of measuring delta Phos B levels in, in a living patient mm -hmm. and perhaps using it as a diagnostic test to see 
how addicted they are uh, and whether baseline levels of Delta Fos B are contributing to individual risk for addiction. So now, and I feel like we're just beginning to <laughs> get into all the work you've done on addiction, but um, we also want to touch on some of the work you've done on depression. As sure. Well. In sort of the mid-2000s, you started really getting mm-hmm. into this field. And so first, what got you interested in this topic as well? Mm-hmm. And there, I think, uh, going back to your earlier explanation of why you got into addiction mm-hmm. and the uh, ease of modeling this in right. animals, I know that uh, that the depression has been not as easy initially on to model. Mm-hmm. So what are the um, initi- what are the approaches that you've taken to sure. modeling this? So state? over the years, we always uh, carried out some studies on stress models. Uh-huh. So I was always very interested in depression. But the, uh, as you mentioned, the ability to model it in animals was never satisfying. Yeah. So, for example, I'll just uh, illustrate this with one test called the force swim test yeah. that you may have heard of. You take a rat or mouse, put it in a beaker of water, the animal will swim or struggle and eventually stop and float. Importantly, yeah. rodents don't drown. They're very buoyant, so they just <laughs> float. Uh, nevertheless, uh, if you give the animal a single dose of an antidepressant medication, drug that works in humans, the animals will struggle or swim longer. Mm-hmm. So a whole field evolved that described the point in time when the rodent stops swimming and floats as despair. And an antidepressant reversing Maybe despair. This was never satisfying for yeah. me, right? Yeah. Many problems. First of all, uh, antidepressants don't work with acute dosing. They require weeks or months of administration to work in people. Uh, secondly, as you said yourself, it may be adaptive for the rodent to stop okay. struggling and just to float. It learns it could save right. its energy. Um, so, um, and any other type of stress that we use, people would use chronic restraint stress. So you'd put an animal in some kind of a restraint. If you ever try to hold down your pet dog or cat, you know animals don't like to be restrained. Interestingly, rodents, when restrained uh, repeatedly, Uh, basically by putting them into like a conical tube or something Uh where they fit snugly, not uncomfortably, but snugly. After a few days, they will just walk into the tube uh, voluntarily. (laughs) So it's almost like a timeout in nursery school where they (laughs) learn to... So it's not... It never made sense to me that this was so stressful because the animals were adapting to it. Mm. Uh, And then when you test these animals after chronic restraint stress in the four swim test... They struggle longer, so it make, it's the opposite. It's like an antidepressant response, yeah. <laughs> which is the opposite of what you'd expect. So it, 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 I was never satisfied. So uh-huh. in the mid um, in the mid two thousands, Olivier Berton in the lab, I was a postdoc, uh, adapted what is referred to as the resident intruder model in uh, large literature mm-hmm. for depression studies. And everything previously was done in uh, rat. We did it in mouse. So Olivier took a, a normal C57 mouse, put it in the cage of a larger, aggressive, retired male breeder CD1 mouse. Mm-hmm. Fighting ensues immediately. Limit the fighting to a few minutes to limit physical injury, yeah. but then separate the two animals by a screen. And the animal stays in that situation for the rest of the 24 hours. And we repeat that process every day for 10 days. Each day the C57 test mouse is exposed to a different aggressor. And at the end of that 10-day period, what we were able to demonstrate is a prolonged behavioral syndrome. In our view, it's the first time that chronic stress in a rodent produces long-lasting changes. In every other model, as soon as you alleviate the stress, within a few days, the animal readapts. In this case, however, the animals were highly anhedonic, means they don't enjoy pleasurable activities, Mm -hmm. food, sex, running wheels, and so on. They show profound social avoidance. They avoid other mice. Importantly, they avoid their brothers, too. Mm-hmm. It's not, it generalizes not only to the aggressor mouse, which looks, it's white, it looks completely different than mm-hmm. a C57 black, black mouse. Uh, they become equally avoidant to their own, uh, to the brothers with which they were raised. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly this, it's essentially a lifelong behavioral abnormality. Mm-hmm. So these changes persist if you measure They persist a long time. Later. We've done this as far as six months later. And we can reverse them. We can treat the mouse with medications that are used uh, in humans as antidepressants, but they only work after chronic dosing. Mm -hmm. So we think that the chronic social defeat stress model has much more 
uh, etiologic validity because social stress is an important contributor. Restrained stress is usually not so contributing to human depression. <laughs> so it's more uh, etiologic validity, more face validity. The behavioral abnormalities are more relevant right. to symptoms of human depression. And I'm not saying that chronic social fee stress is the model of human depression. Mm -hmm. Depression is a very heterogeneous syndrome. No one model can uh, capture everything in the human broad syndrome, mm -hmm. but it captures some features of human depression, we believe. And so we've used it now with very, very high-scale uh, gene discovery efforts like RNA-seq and CHIP-seq to identify within specific brain areas molecular changes that are occurring mm -hmm. uh, to cause these C57 mice to succumb. The other very important feature of social defeat is that about a third of genetically identical animals do not succumb. They remain resilient. So they don't show the social avoidance, they don't show the anhedonia, even though we can demonstrate they've been exposed to equivalent levels of stress. Mm -hmm and therefore the model has allowed us to look for some of the body's natural endogenous mechanisms that make certain individuals more resilient, more robust. And looking at the neurobiology of resilience then has become a major focus of the lab as well. So these, that's incredible that um, a third of the animals mm -hmm. being genetically identical, mm -hmm. and we call them genetically identical because they're, they're the not, same strain right. as it's supposed to right. be, um, are the differences, do you think, do they emerge from, you know, epigenetic modifications mm -hmm. that um, are uh, maybe randomly distributed at birth, or are they slight uh, genetic differences that just uh, emerge between... We've never looked at it. I don't think that the scale or, or uh, commonality of resilience could be explained by the minor genetic differences. I think a more... Uh, a greater possibility is whether subtle environmental differences might be affected. For example, yeah. the position of pups in the mother's womb, the uh, and some differences in maternal care. We we never looked at prenatal factors, but we've tried to rule out every postnatal factor. So, differences in maternal care do not seem to relate to susceptibility or resilience. Dominance in a litter hierarchy does not relate to resilience or susceptibility. Wow. So a dominant mouse is no more likely to be resilient or susceptible than the most submissive mouse. Uh, and there's no behavioral test that we've identified or biochemical measure that we've identified that predicts before the stress whether a C57 mouse will become susceptible or resilient. So it's wow. a latent feature. So our hypothesis is that it's pre-existing epigenetic changes that occur. So, and this is related to Waddington's original idea of epigenetics in the 40s, mm -hmm. 1940s. So basically that during development, um, there are random stochastic changes that occur in uh, the formation of cells and tissues. So mm -hmm. in the brain, um, in a human, 100 billion nerve cells have to be generated from a smaller number of stem cells. Mm -hmm. And then 100 trillion synapses need to form to create a complete brain. Mm -hmm. And that during that process, we believe that there's a tremendous amount of just random variation. That would be reflected by the fact that identical twins have very different patterns of cerebral gyri mm -hmm. in their yeah. brains. Almost like fingerprints, right? Identical twins have different fingerprints also because of random stochastic events. And wow. now it's a hard thing to prove because we cannot take a C57 mouse and know, do a biological measure and know whether it's gonna be susceptible or resilient mm -hmm. in order to characterize its pre-existing epigenetic state. But that's something that we would like to do uh, once we can find predictive measures. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a random question? Sure. So in humans, right, uh, depression is thought to be in higher incidence in females. Yes. Can you do this, uh, this test in females and have you seen a difference? Yes. So. Uh, Depression is two times more common in females, so it's, it's, it's essential to look at differences, sex differences in responses. C57 mouse social defeat so far can only be done in male mice. Mm. However, there are other species of mice where the females are 
aggressive enough to induce defeat in in uh, in other mice. So, for example, the California mouse, which is a bit more looks more like a gerbil, mm -hmm. uh, the females are more aggressive than the males, mm -hmm. and the female a larger female California mouse will induce defeat in a smaller female California mouse. Mm -hmm. This is work done by Brian Trainer mm -hmm. at UC Davis. And Brian has shown some of the si very s many similar biochemical changes in the brains of these female uh, mice uh, that we see in male C57s. And we're now working with Brian to do RNA-seq mm -hmm. uh, to characterize the male-female differences. Definitely. Just to emphasize the importance of this, we've um, complemented our studies on mouse models by studying human postmortem brain tissue. Mm -hmm. And one of the major findings of doing RNA-seq on the brains of people who died when they were depressed versus controls is the almost non-overlapping set of genes that are abnormally expressed in depressed women mm -hmm. versus depressed men. Mm -hmm. uh, even interestingly, if some of the same biochemical pathways are affected within a given brain region, mm -hmm. for example, MAP kinase signaling is affected in both sexes, but very different genes contribute to those, uh, to that altered pathway activity. And it, uh, um, it does, the data do suggest that depression may be a fundamentally different syndrome in men versus women, mm -hmm. really underscoring the importance of studying uh, stress responses in females. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Talking about some of the uh, molecular changes mm -hmm. that you uncovered mm -hmm. um, in depressed or depression-susceptible individuals. Mm -hmm. So you found um, differences in how the gene BDNF is regulated yes. in both the hippocampus and in the nucleus accumbens, mm -hmm. and there seems to be this opposite regulation. Um, right. So can you talk about that? Sure, okay. Like yeah, so I think it's not surprising that the same protein will play a different role in a behavioral outcome based yeah. on the nerve cell type in which you do the experiment. BDNF seems to promote... Um, synaptic plasticity, glutamatergic synaptic plasticity in pretty much every brain area where it has been studied. So what the data mean that enhancing glutamatergic synaptic plasticity in hippocampus does something different behaviorally in a stress response than in doing the same in a nucleus accumbens uh, in terms of the stress response. And I think that gives some insight into the different ways these different nerve cell types or brain regions are wired together uh, to uh, contribute to a complex behavior. And so what do you think changes are that are happening in the nucleus accumbens um, that uh, BDNF might be mediating? Because I, the, I think we're now understanding that the VTA nucleus accumbens circuit mediates not only reward, but mm -hmm. also aversion yep. or, you know, just Absolutely. salient stimuli. Abs so, so are there particular... Yeah, so I think it's the salient stimuli is the key. And that what the enhanced BDNF is doing in a stress, in a chronic stress paradigm, it's not acute, it's chronic stress yeah. paradigm, produces pathological molecular circuits involving BDNF. Yeah. And that is probably uh, creating behavioral inflexibility in the animal. I'm pontificating a bit now. Uh, and that behavioral inflexibility is preventing an individual from reordering salience under different circumstances. So in a chronic stress paradigm, the uh, individual uh, learns certain uh, parameters of what life, of what's happening in life, say in chronic social defeat, being aggressed by uh, um, another mouse every day. But over time, a normal, more resilient mouse can remain flexible in learning. And what the B increased BDNF is doing is retarding that flexibility. So resilience, as I'll show today, in fact, is a more plastic state. Many more gene expression changes are occurring in most brain regions to enable an animal to adapt uh, in a more resilient way. Uh, and what the in increase in BDNF is really mediating a loss of that plasticity. Yeah. Ironically, by enhancing a form of synaptic plasticity. Hmm. We're about to hear your talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, uh, I'm going to be talking about depression today, a lot of what I just uh, mentioned. I'll be reviewing uh, our use of RNA-seq and CHIP-seq as a very broad-based way in mouse models and in human brain tissue, and I'll illustrate some novel bioinformatic ways in which we've um, tried to mine these enormous data sets to uh, uncover new mechanisms of depression as well as resilience. Then the last part of the talk, I'll speak about transgenerational inheritance of stress responses, whereby raises the 
possibility, very provocative, unproven, controversial, mm -hmm. that an adult's behavioral experience might actually be passed down to subsequent generations wow. to alter the offspring's susceptibility to stress responses. That, wow. will, that will be an interesting, <laughs> an interesting topic. All right, so usually we like to close with a couple of what we call our rapid-fire questions. Okay. So these mm -hmm. are just uh, some brief questions, and we want you to just um, answer with whatever comes to the top okay. of your head. They're supposed to be fun. Mm -hmm. So, um, David, why don't you start us? Sure. Um, so you mentioned you spent 27 years in New Haven. So what is your favorite thing or memory about Yale or New Haven? Well, the people that I met there, mm -hmm. friends in college, med school, and the faculty with with whom I worked when I was there were great. The other thing about New Haven is the pizza is really good. Oh, really? <laughs> Surprisingly. It's yeah. hard to believe, yeah. but for some reason, the pizza in New Haven is better than any other city I've ever been and in the United so States. New York. <laughs> <laughs> New Haven pizza is much better than New York pizza. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's a good endorsement. Yeah. Um, and then we want to ask, I know science takes a lot of time, but what's mm -hmm. your favorite non-science activity? Oh, boy. When uh, our kids were younger, I spent most of my time on the soccer field watching our three kids play soccer. Mm -hmm. uh, more recently, uh, my wife and I love uh, eating out, going to shows. Uh, I love watching uh, violent TV shows <laughs> <laughs> like Game of Thrones. <laughs> Many in the audience will empathize with that. <laughs> All right. And um, another thing, we talked a lot about, you know, the human implications of a lot of your research. Mm -hmm. What is one thing you wish the general population, maybe, you know, our lay, more lay audience, knew about the neurobiology of addiction and reward? I think the most important thing is for people to realize that the brain is so, so much more complicated than even we neuroscientists believed 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that People are seeing dramatic advances now in treatments of cancer, cardiovascular disease, immunologic disease. And the new treatments for psychiatric conditions or brain conditions overall really haven't been coming at nearly the same pace. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that is due to the fact that the brain and its disorders are that much more complicated. Mm -hmm. So the general public needs to keep its faith in, in the research, needs to double down in investment in research, the number of dollars invested per disease impact, for example, is lower for psychiatry disorders than for heart or cancer yeah. disorders. And eventually we will get there. And the reason it's taken so long is because the challenge is that much more difficult. Mm. So patience. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for it's being been with a, us today. It's been a pleasure talking with yeah. you guys. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Kristen Branson, a group leader at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Genealogy Research Campus. Neurotalk is a production of Neurot West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Ada Yee, Luis Giam, Eddie Abron, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, Sharon Liu, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains of Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow NeurightWest on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Amy Eve.